poets and intellectuals of this time. The innovative minds. The intelligentsia. Those that are breaking down the barriers and choosing a bohemian existence, escaping from dreary suburban ideals and materialistic death traps. Where are these engaging people? The risk takers. The revolutionaries. Those living apart from this big unrest. Those escaping the sterility of corporate junkies who get high on materialistic consumption. Welcome to the Bohemian Beat. We will journey beyond the horizon and find the artists living on the edge, going down into the murky waters of their very existence, where these brave souls have re-emerged with art that is challenging, original, and brutal. You have tuned into the Bohemian Beat. I'm Riddy, with you for the next hour. Today, we are continuing with part three of our special series, The Poetics of Bob Dylan and Exploration, where we look at the poetry behind the man, recently awarded the 2016 Nobel Prize in Literature. But first, let's go to the beginning of 1964 when Dylan released his third studio album, The Times They Are A-Changing, his first collection to feature only original compositions. The title track is one of Dylan's most famous. He recalls writing the song as a deliberate attempt to create an anthem of change for the moment. He says, This was definitely a song with a purpose. It was influenced, of course, by the Irish and Scottish ballads. Come all ye bold highwaymen, come all ye tender-hearted maidens. I wanted to write a big song with short, concise verses that piled up on each other in a hypnotic way. The civil rights movement and the folk music movement were pretty close for a while and all allied together at that time. This is Blackmore's Night performing The Times They Are A-Changing. Slow on now, we're later 
night with a cover of Bob Dylan's song, The Times They Are A-Changing. In 1965, Bob Dylan not only released two studio albums, Bring It All Back Home and Highway 61 Revisited, he was also writing a collection of prose poetry called Tarantula. I will read one of the shorter pieces called Unresponsible Black Night Crash. The United States is not soundproof. You might think that nothing can reach those tens of thousands living behind the wall of dollar, but your fear can bring in the truth. Picture of dirt farmer, long johns, coonskin cap, strangling himself on his shoe, his wife tripping over the skulls, her hair in rats, their kid is wearing a scorpion, the scorpion wears glasses, the kid, he's drinking gin, everybody has balloons stuck in their eyes that they will never get a suntan in Mexico is obvious. Send your dollar today, bend over backwards, or shut your mouths forever. The bully comes in, kicks the newsboy, you know where, and begins ripping away at the audio repairman's shirt. In 2004, Bob Dylan published a memoir called Chronicles, Volume 1. The first three chapters are about the year between his arrival in New York City in 1961 and recording his first album. This is Sean Penn reading from the Chronicles, Part 1, from Chapter 2, The Lost Land. I had no song in my repertoire for commercial radio anyway. Songs about debauched bootleggers, mothers that drown their own children, Cadillacs that only got five miles to the gallon, floods, Union Hall fires, darkness and cadavers at the bottom of rivers weren't for radiophiles. There was nothing easygoing about the folk songs I sang. They weren't friendly or ripe with mellowness. They didn't come gently to the shore. Whatever the case, it wasn't that I was anti-popular culture or anything and I had no ambitions to stir things up. I just thought of mainstream culture as lame as hell and a big trick. Folk songs had taught me that. Whatever you were thinking could be dead wrong. I cut the radio off, crisscrossed the room, pausing for a moment to turn on the black and white TV. Wagon train was on. It seemed to be beaming in from some foreign country. I shut that off, too, and went into another room, a windowless one with a painted door. 
a dark cavern with a floor-to-ceiling library. I switched on the lamps. The place had an overwhelming presence of literature, and you couldn't help but lose your passion for dumbness. Up until this time, I'd been raised in a cultural spectrum that had left my mind black with soot. Brando, James Dean, Milton Berle, Marilyn Monroe, Lucy, Earl Warren and Khrushchev, Castro, Little Rock and Peyton Place, Tennessee Williams and Joe DiMaggio, J. Edgar Hoover and Westinghouse, the Nelsons, Holiday Inns and Red Hot Chevys, Mickey Spillane and Joe McCarthy, Levittown. Standing in this room, you could take it all for a joke. There were all types of things in here, the stuff that could make you bug-eyed, Pericles' ideal state of democracy, Thucydides, the Athenian general, a narrative which would give you chills. It was written 400 years before Christ, and it talks about how human nature is always the enemy of anything superior. Thucydides writes about how words in his time have changed from their ordinary meaning, how actions and opinions can be altered in the blink of an eye. It's like nothing has changed from his time to mine. There were novels by Gogol and Balzac, Maupassant, Hugo, Dickens. I usually opened up some book to the middle, read a few pages, and if I liked it, went back to the beginning. I read the poetry books mostly, Byron and Shelley and Longfellow and Poe. I memorized Poe's poem, The Bells, and strummed it to a melody on my guitar. There was no noise in Ray's place, just if I'd turn the radio on or listen to records. If not, there was only a graveyard silence, and I'd always return to the books dig through them like an archaeologist. The Russian stuff on the shelves had an especially dark presence. Dostoevsky had lived a dismal and hard life. The Tsar sent him to a prison camp in Siberia in 1849. Dostoevsky was accused of writing socialist propaganda. He was eventually pardoned and wrote stories to ward off his creditors. Just like in the early 70s, I wrote albums to ward off mine. In the past, I had never been that keen on books and writers, but I liked stories. Stories by Edgar Rice Burroughs, who wrote about the mythical Africa, Luke Short, the mythical Western tales, Jules Verne, H.G. Wells. Those were my favorites, but that's before I discovered the folk singers. The folk singers could sing songs like an entire book, but only in a few verses. It's hard to describe what makes a character or an event folk song worthy. It probably has something to do with the character being fair and honest and open. Bravery in an abstract way. A lot was changing in America. The sociologists were saying that TV had deadly intentions and was destroying the minds and imaginations of the young, that their attention spans were being dragged down. Maybe that's true, but the three-minute song also did the same thing. There's nothing you have to be able to connect, nothing to remember. A lot of the songs I was singing were long and I didn't find it troubling at all to remember or sing the storylines. I had broken myself out of the habit of thinking in short song cycles and began reading longer and longer poems to see if I could remember anything I read about in the beginning. I read all of Lord Byron's Don Juan and concentrated fully from start to finish. I began cramming my brain with all kinds of deep poems. It seemed like I'd been pulling an empty wagon for a long time now and I was beginning to fill it up and would have to pull harder. I felt like it was coming out of the back pasture. I was changing in other ways, too. Things that used to affect me didn't affect me anymore. I wasn't too concerned about people, their motives. I didn't feel the need to examine every stranger that approached. While riding on a train going west 
Concerning myself And the first few friends I had With half-damp eyes I stared to the room Where my friends and I had spent many an afternoon Well, we together With many a storm Laughing and singing Till the early hours of the morn By the old wooden stove Our hats was hung Our words was told Our songs was sung Well, we longed for nothing and were satisfied Joking and talking about the world outside With hungry hearts through the heat and cold We never much thought we could get very old We thought we could sit forever in fun Our chances really was a million to one from white It was all that easy to tell wrong from right And our choices they was few So the thought never hit At the one road we traveled We never shattered or split How many a year has passed and gone Many a gamble has been lost and won And many a road Taken by many a first friend And each one I've never seen again
wish, I wish in vain That we could sit simply in that room again Ten thousand dollars at the drop of a head I'd give it all gladly If our lives could be like that You are listening to The Bohemian Beat, broadcasting nationally since 2007 across the community radio network. Today's show is part three of a special series exploring the poetics of Bob Dylan. We just heard Bob Dylan's dream from his album, The Freewheeling Bob Dylan, and before that, Sean Penn reading from Bob Dylan's memoir called Chronicles, part one. One of the poems just referred to is Kubla Khan, one of the best-known poems by the English poet and philosopher Samuel Taylor Coleridge. It was written in 1797, but not published until 1816. The poem is one of the finest examples of the Romantic movement in English literature. The Romantics valued emotion, sensation, the beauty of nature and the power of the imagination. Kubla Khan is an experimental lyric written in a dreamlike state, which expresses a fascination with Asia. The poem's subject, Kubla Khan, was the grandson of Genghis Khan and the founder of the Mongol or Yuan dynasty that ruled China from 1279 to 1368. In a short preface to Coleridge's poem, the poet says he was reading the travels of Marco Polo when he fell asleep under the influence of opium. He then composed two or three hundred lines in his sleep without any consciousness of effort. Unfortunately, he adds, he was interrupted while writing down the lines and he could never recollect the rest. Kubla Khan by Samuel Taylor Coleridge in Xanadu did Kubla Khan a stately pleasure dome decree, where Alf the sacred river ran through caverns measureless to man down to a sunless sea. So twice five miles of fertile ground with walls and towers were girdled round, and there were gardens bright with sinuous rills where blossomed many an incense-bearing tree. And here were forests ancient as the hills, enfolding sunny spots of greenery. But oh, that deep romantic chasm which slanted down the green hill athwart a cedarn cover. A savage place, as holy and enchanted as e'er beneath a waning moon was haunted by woman wailing for her demon lover. And from this chasm, with ceaseless turmoil seething, as if this earth in fast thick pants were breathing, a mighty fountain momently was forced amid whose swift half-intermitted burst huge fragments vaulted like rebounding hail or chaffy grain beneath the thresher's flail. And mid these dancing rocks, at once and ever, it flung up momently the sacred river. Five miles meandering with a mazy motion through wood and dale the sacred river ran, then reached the caverns measureless to man and sank in tumult to a lifeless ocean. And mid this tumult, Kubla heard from far ancestral voices prophesying war. The shadow of the dome of pleasure floated midway on the waves, 
where was heard the mingled measure from the fountain and the caves. It was a miracle, a rare device, a sunny pleasure dome with caves of ice. A damsel with a dulcimer in her vision once I saw. It was an Abyssinian maid, and on her dulcimer she played, singing of Mount Abora. Could I revive within me her symphony and song, to such a deep delight would win me, that with music loud and long I would build that dome in air, that sunny dome, those caves of ice, and all who heard should see them there, and all should cry, Beware, beware, his flashing eyes, his floating hair, Weave a circle round him thrice, and close your eyes with holy dread, for he on honeydew hath fed, and drunk the milk of paradise. Darkness at the break of noon Shadows, even the silver spoon The handmaid blade, the child's balloon Eclipses both the sun and moon To understand, you know, too soon There is no sense in trying Pointed threats, they bluff with scorn Suicide remarks are torn From the fool's gold mouthpiece The hollow horn plays wasted words Proves to warn that he not busy being born Is busy dying Temptation's page flies out the door You follow, find yourself at war Watch waterfalls of pity roar You feel the moan, but unlike before You discover that you just be one more person crying So don't fear if you hear A foreign sound to your ear it's all right, Ma, I'm only sighing. Some worn victory, some downfall Private reasons, great or small Can be seen in the eyes of those that call To make all that should be killed to crawl While others say don't hate nothing at all Except hatred Disillusion words like bullets bark As human gods aim for their mark Make everything from toy guns that spark To flesh-colored Christs that glow in the dark It's easy to see without looking too far That not much is really sacred Our preachers preach of evil fates Teachers teach that knowledge waits Can lead to hundred dollar plates Goodness hides behind its gates But even the president of the United States Sometimes must have to stand naked And though the rules of the road have been lodged It's only people's games Hey, you got to dodge and it's all right, Ma, I can make it.
Advertising signs that con you into thinking you're the one That can do what's never been done That can win what's never been won Meantime life outside goes on all around you You lose yourself, you reappear You suddenly find you got nothing to fear Alone you stand with nobody near When a trembling distant voice unclear Startles your sleeping ears to hear That somebody thinks they really found you A question in your nerves is lit Yet you know there is no answer fit To satisfy and sure you not to quit To keep it in your mind and not forget That it is not he or she or them or it That you belong to But though the masters make the rules For the wise men and the fools I got nothing more to live up to For them that must obey authority that they do not respect in any degree Who despise their jobs, their destiny, speak jealously of them that are free Do what they do just to be nothing more than something they invest in While some on principles baptized to strict party platform ties Social clubs in drag disguise Outsiders they can freely criticize Tell nothing except who to idolize and say God bless him While one who sings with his tongue on fire Gargles in the rat race choir Bent out of shape from society's pliers Cares not to come up any higher But rather get you down in the hole that he's in But I mean no harm Nor put fault On anyone that lives in a vault But it's all right, Ma If I can't please him Old lady judges watch people in pairs Limited in sex they dare To push fake morals, insult and stare While money doesn't talk it swears Obscenity, who really cares? Propaganda all is phony While them that defend what they cannot see With a killer's pride, security It blows their minds most bitterly For them that think death's honesty Won't fall upon them naturally Life sometimes must get lonely My eyes collide head on with stuffed graveyards False goals I scuff at pettiness which plays so rough Walk upside down inside handcuffs Kick my legs to crash it off Say, okay, I've had enough What else can you show me? And if my thought dreams could be seen 
They'd probably put my head in a guillotine But it's all right, Ma It's life and life only That was Bob Dylan with It's All Right, Ma, I'm Only Bleeding. And before that, the poem Kubla Khan by Samuel Taylor Coleridge, read by Martin Savage for the BBC. Another poem Bob Dylan refers to in his memoir is a long poem Don Juan by Lord Byron, based on the legend of Don Juan, which Byron reverses, portraying Juan not as a womanizer, but as someone easily seduced by women. This next piece is from Canto One of Don Juan by Lord Byron. Young Juan now was 16 years of age, tall, handsome, slender, but well-knit. He seemed active, though not so sprightly, as a page, and everybody but his mother deemed him almost man. But she flew in a rage and bit her lips, or else she might have screamed, if any said so, for to be precocious was in her eyes a thing the most atrocious. Amongst her numerous acquaintance, all selected for discretion and devotion, there was the Donna Julia, whom to call pretty were but to give a feeble notion of many charms in her as natural as sweetness to the flower or salt to ocean, her zone to Venus or his bow to Cupid. But this last simile is trite and stupid. Her eye, I'm very fond of handsome eyes, was large and dark, suppressing half its fire until she spoke. Then through its soft disguise flashed an expression more of pride than ire and love than either. And there would arise a something in them which was not desire, but would have been perhaps but for the soul which struggled through and chastened down the whole. Her glossy hair was clustered o'er a brow bright with intelligence and fair and smooth. Her eyebrow's shape was like the aerial bow, her cheek all purple with a beam of youth, mounting at times to a transparent glow as if her veins ran lightning. She in sooth possessed an air and grace by no means common, her stature tall. I hate a dumpy woman. Wedded she was some years, and to a man of fifty, and such husbands are in plenty, and yet I think instead of such a one, t'were better to have two of five and twenty, especially in countries near the sun. And now I think on, ni viene in mente, ladies even of the most uneasy virtue prefer a spouse whose age is short of thirty. Alfonso was the name of Julia's lord, a man well looking for his years and who was neither much beloved nor yet abhorred. They lived together as most people do, suffering each other's foibles by accord, and not exactly either one or two. Yet he was jealous, though he did not show it, for jealousy dislikes the world to know it. Juan she saw, and as a pretty child caressed him often. Such a thing might be quite innocently done and harmless styled when she had twenty years and thirteen he. But I am not so sure I should have smiled when he was sixteen, Julia twenty-three. These few short years make wondrous alterations, particularly amongst sunburnt nations. Well, whatever the cause might be, they had become changed, for the dame grew distant, the youth shy, their looks cast down, their greetings almost dumb, and much embarrassment in either eye. There surely will be little doubt with some eye, 
But as for Dewan, he had no more notion than he who never saw the sea of ocean. Poor Julia's heart was in an awkward state. She felt it going and resolved to make the noblest efforts for herself and mate. For honors, prides, religions, virtues' sake, her resolutions were most truly great and almost might have made a Tarquin quake. She prayed the Virgin Mary for her grace as being the best judge of a lady's case. Young Juan wandered by the glassy brooks, thinking unutterable things. He threw himself at length within the leafy the cork forest grew, material for their books, and every now and then we read them through, so that their plan and prosody are eligible, unless, like Wordsworth, they prove unintelligible. He, Juan, and not Wordsworth, so pursued his self-communion with his own high soul until his mighty heart in its great mood had mitigated part, though not the whole, of its disease. He did the best he could with things not very subject to control, and turned without perceiving his condition like Coleridge into a metaphysician. He thought about himself and the whole earth, of man the wonderful, and of the stars, and how the deuce they ever could have birth. And then he thought of earthquakes and of wars, how many miles the moon might have in girth, of air balloons, and of the many bars to perfect knowledge of the boundless skies. And then he thought of Donna Julia's eyes. In thoughts like these, true wisdom may discern longings sublime and aspirations high, which some are born with, but the most part learn to plague themselves with all they know not why. Tis strange that one so young should thus concern his brain about the action of the sky. If you think twas philosophy that this did, I can't help thinking puberty assisted. He poured upon the leaves and on the flowers and heard a voice in all the winds. And then he thought of wood nymphs and immortal bowers and how the goddesses came down to men. He missed the pathway, he forgot the hours, and when he looked upon his watch again, he found how much old time had been a winner. Ain't no use to sit and wonder why, babe. It don't matter anyhow. Ain't no use to sit and wonder why, babe. If you don't know by now When the rooster crows At the break of dawn Look out your window I'll be gone Well, you're the reason I'm traveling on Don't think twice, it's all right Ain't no use in turning on your light, babe Like I never know Ain't no use in turning on your light, babe I'm on 
the dark side of the road Still I wish there was something you could do or say Something to make me change my mind performing a cover of Bob Dylan's track, Don't Think Twice, It's All Right. And before that, Tyrone Power, reading from Canto One of Lord Byron's epic poem, Don Juan. 
This is The Bohemian Beat, and today we're exploring some of the poetry influences of Bob Dylan, recently awarded the 2016 Nobel Prize in Literature. Bob Dylan has studied the Bible extensively. Dylan's mother has revealed in an interview, I quote, In his house in Woodstock, there's a huge Bible open on a stand in the middle of his study. Of all the books that crowd his house, overflow from his house, that Bible gets the most attention. He's continuously getting up and going over to refer to something. The lyrics in this next track by Bob Dylan, The Wicked Messenger, have their origins in the Bible. The song title appears to be derived from Proverbs 13:17. The song revolves around a character, a wicked messenger, who has been sent by Eli, a priest, in the books of Samuel. An interpretation of the song is that the high priest Eli was one of the most intellectual figures in the Old Testament. To have been sent by Eli implies a reliance on intellect. Perhaps Dylan felt he had valued rationality too highly over spirituality. This is Patti Smith performing Dylan's 1967 song, The Wicked Messenger.
Petty Smith performing a cover of Bob Dylan's song, The Wicked Messenger. This is The Bohemian Beat, and today's show is the final part of a three-part series called The Poetics of Bob Dylan, and Exploration, where we explore how Bob Dylan intermingles the dynamics of folk culture with sophisticated art. Bob Dylan had a strong connection to the beat poets. Lawrence Ferlinghetti, one of the last links to the early days of the beat poetry movement, never doubted the artistry of Bob Dylan or his worthiness of the Nobel Prize. He has congratulated Dylan, I quote, Bravo for Dylan, Nobel Laureate. He says he always considered Dylan a poet first. This next poem, Speak Out, by Lawrence Ferlinghetti, was composed in March 2003. And a vast paranoia sweeps across the land. And America turns the attack on its twin towers into the beginning of the Third World War. The war with the Third World. And the terrorists in Washington are drafting all the young men. And no one speaks. And they are rousting out all the ones with turbans. And they are flushing out all the strange immigrants. And they're shipping all the young men to the killing fields again. And no one speaks. And when they come to round up all the great writers and poets and painters, the National Endowment of the Arts of Complacency will not speak. While all the young men will be killing all the young men in the killing fields again. So now is the time for you to speak, all you lovers of liberty all you lovers of the pursuit of happiness, all you lovers and sleepers, deep in your private dreams. Now is the time for you to speak, O silent majority, before they come for you. Now you masters of war, you that build all the guns, you that build the death plane, you that build the big bombs You that hide behind walls You that hide behind desks I just want you to know I can see through your mask You that never done nothing But build to destroy You play with my world Like it's your little toy you put a gun in my hand You hide from my eyes And you turn and run farther when the fast bullets fly Like Judas of old You lie and deceive A world war can be won You want me to believe But I see through your eyes and I see through your brain Like I see through the water that runs down my drain You fasten their triggers For others to fire Then you sit back and watch When the death count gets higher You hide in your mansion As young people's blood 
flows out of their bodies and is buried in the mud. You've thrown the worst fear that can never be hurled. The fear to bring children into the world or threaten my baby, unborn and unnamed. You ain't the blood that runs in your veins How much do I know To talk out of turn You might say that I'm young You might say I'm unlearned There's one thing I know Though I'm younger than you Even Jesus would never forgive what you do ask you one question is your money that good will it buy you forgiveness do you think that it could I think you will find when your death takes its toll all the money you made will never buy back yours you are listening to The Bohemian Beat and we just heard Judy Collins with a cover of Bob Dylan's track, Masters of War. And before that, Shell, reading a poem by Lawrence Ferlinghetti called Speak Out. Today's show was a concluding part to our three-part series called The Poetics of Bob Dylan and Exploration. I hope you've enjoyed checking out just some of the poetics behind the music of Bob Dylan, recently awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature. I would like to thank Julian Gibbs for his input into this series. If you'd like more information and podcasts, check out thebohemianbeat.com. I will be back next week. Same beat time, same bohemian frequency for more poetic entertainment. We will end with another track from Bob Dylan's 1967 album, John Wesley Harding, called Ballad of Frankie Lee and Judas Priest. Thank you for joining me on the Bohemian Beat. I'm Riddy. Frankie Lee and Judas Priest, they were the best of friends. So when Frankie Lee needed money one day, Judas quickly pulled out a roll of tens and placed them on a footstool just above the plotted plain. Saying, take your pick, Frankie boy, my loss will be your gain. Well, Frankie Lee he sat right down and put his fingers to his chin But with the cold eyes of Judas on him His head began to spin Could you please not stare at me like that, he said It's just my foolish pride But sometimes a man must be alone And this is no place to hide Well, Judas, he just winked and said All right, I'll leave you here but you better hurry up and choose which of those bills you want before they all disappear. I'm gonna start my picking right now, just tell me where you'll be. 
Judas pointed down the road and said, Eternity. Eternity, said Frankie Lee, with a voice as cold as ice. That's right, said Judas, Eternity, though you might call it paradise. I don't call it anything, said Frankie Lee with a smile. All right, said Judas Priest. I'll see you after a while. Well, Frankie Lee, he sat back down, feeling low and mean. When just then a passing stranger burst upon the scene, saying, Are you Frankie Lee, the gambler whose father's deceased? Well, if you are, there's a fella calling you down the road, and they say his name is Priest. Oh, yes, he is my friend, said Frankie Lee in freight. I do recall him very well. In fact, he just left my safe. Yes, that's the one, said the stranger, as quiet as a mouse. Well, my message is he's down the road, stranded in a house. Well, Frankie Lee, he panicked. He dropped everything and ran. Until he came onto the spot where Judas Priest did stand. What kind of house is this, he said, where I have come to roam? It's not a house, says Judas Priest. It's not a house, it's a home. Well, Frankie Lee, he trembled. He soon lost all control. Which he had made while the mission bells did toll. He just stood there staring at that big house as bright as any sun, with four and twenty windows and a woman's face in every one. Well, up the stairs ran Frankie Lee with a soulful bounding leap, and foaming at the mouth, he began to make his midnight creep. For sixteen nights and days he raved, but on the seventeenth he burst into the arms of Judas Priest, which is where he died of thirst. No one tried to say a thing when they carried him out in jest, except of course the little neighbor boy who carried him to rest. Just walked along alone with his guilt so well concealed, and muttered underneath his breath, "Nothing is revealed." Well, the moral of this story, the moral. Song is simply that one should never be where one does not belong. So when you see your neighbor carrying something, help him with his load, and don't go mistaking paradise for that home across the road. 